Today is uh, Tuesday, Sunday, the day in the Anglican Church calendar when we think about God as a Trinity. And today we're thinking about the doctrine of the Trinity. And um, the word doctrine simply means teaching or tradition. And as Christians, actually, we have many, many, many doctrines, many teachings. And most of our teachings, most of our doctrines are things that are explicitly and clearly taught in Scripture. So that... Given and receive the Holy Spirit so that we might be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. When I say all of those things, I'm teaching doctrines that are explicitly, clearly written in Scripture. But when we speak about Christian doctrines, sometimes our teachings, the things that we teach, are actually more like theories. Now, when I say theory, I don't mean theory in the everyday sense of being a notion that may or may not be true, uh, as in, oh, that's an interesting theory. Um, no, when I say theory, I mean theory in the scientific sense of a theory being one big idea that explains lots of diverse observations. Lots of things that might be confusing or apparently contradicting, and yet this one big idea somehow successfully explains them all. That's what the word theory means when scientists use it. And doctrines are often are like theories. One big idea that explains lots of other observations, lots of little observations that, that can be confusing in and of themselves. So what does the doctrine of the Trinity say? Well, actually, this is what it says. It says, point one, God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God, not each person is one-third of God. Each person is fully God, and there is one God, not there are three gods. No, there's not three gods. There's only one God. Question. Where on earth does the Bible teach that? Answer. Nowhere. But that's just the point. This statement is not intended to simply rephrase something that's clearly taught or expounded in the Bible. Rather, it is a theory that, seemed, that seeks to explain the, at times, apparently contradictory information in the Bible. The Bible being, of course, a collection of 66 contextual documents. So this is one big idea that explains many different observations. Observations that, at times, can be difficult to reconcile. Also, somebody might say, hey, this is obviously nonsense. Because if lines 1, 2, and 3 are all correct, then line 4 must be incorrect. Line 4 presents a nonsense conclusion. If three different persons are all fully God, not one-third of God, if they're all fully God, then there must be three gods. So we have some work ahead of us. Let, let's, in, in exploring this further, let's ask two questions. Here are my two questions. 
Question one, why should I believe this doctrine? And question two, what difference does this make anyway? So let's start with question one, why should I believe this? Well, in the Bible, it says again and again and again, there is only one God. There is only one God. He is the supreme, unmatched, unopposed, exclusive creator of the heavens and the earth. By the way, last Sunday afternoon, um, my wife Jo asked me why I'd started rolling my R's. Um, <clears throat> it's because while I wait for my tongue to regain its full functionality, either I roll them or I pronounce them as W's. So you either get creation or creation. Um, that's why I'm rolling my R's. Hang in there with me. <clears throat> so, we, in the Bible, we've only got one God. One God who is the supreme creator of all that there is. But in the Old Testament, you know, there are very mysterious things about God. Um, when God talks about himself, sometimes he refers to himself in plural form. For example, in the first chapter of the Bible, God says, let us, not, not let me, but rather he says, let us make Make humankind in our image, in our likeness. That's mysterious. A second thing that is mysterious is that occasionally more than one person can be referred to as God or as Yahweh, God's personal name. So example, Psalm 45, verse 6 says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom because... You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Isn't that strange? Isn't that mysterious? God has a God. A third thing that in the Old Testament is mysterious is that occasionally God appears to people in the form of a human being. God appeared to Abraham and Isaiah and, and Jacob and to many, many others in the form of a human being. A fourth thing that in the Old Testament is mysterious is that the Old Testament treats the Holy Spirit not as some kind of impersonal force, but rather as a person. And as a person who is God and yet is distinct from God. And that's mysterious. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, is God's personal, empowering presence. But he is also a distinct person from God who is in heaven. And when it comes to the New Testament, <clears throat> we meet Jesus. And it's very clear that Jesus is a human being. Um, he was born as a baby. And he grew up. And he trained as a carpenter. And he ate and he drank, and he got tired, and he fell asleep. He's an ordinary man. But it is also clear that Jesus of Nazareth is God too. He's God with us. He regularly said things that only God could say, and he regularly did things that only God can do. And during his time on earth, Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit led him. It taught him and guided him. Now, Jesus had his own will. He had his own ability to make decisions. 
but it was his pleasure to be in submission to his Father in heaven through the Holy Spirit. And therefore, in the New Testament, to meet Jesus is, is to meet God. To listen to Jesus is to listen to God. And to speak to Jesus is to pray. Jesus and the Holy Spirit are distinct from God who is in heaven and they're distinct from each other yet they are also God. So, in summary then, in our, in our lightning fast tour of the Bible, we've seen that, one, God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. God reveals himself in the Bible through three Three persons who are distinct. That the Father is not the Son, nor is the Son the Father, nor is the Father the Spirit, nor is the Spirit the Father, etc., etc., etc. And each person is fully God, not each person is one third of God. If, if you grieve the Holy Spirit, you can't go, oh, that's bad, that's one out of three, I've got the other two, let's see if I can get it right with them. Now, actually, if you grieve the Holy Spirit, you've grieved God. Not just a third of God. And if you honor the Son, you honor God. And if you pray to the Father, you pray to God. Each person is fully God. And yet, there is one God. Not, there is three gods. There are three gods. No, that's not right. There's only one God. So I guess the question is, how can line four be reconciled with lines one through three? If the question is, how can God be three persons, each one fully God, and yet there is only one God, then the only honest answer is, I don't know. I don't know how God can be three persons, each one fully God, and yet there is still only one God. And in fact, speaking on behalf of the entire human race, I think the correct answer is, we don't know how God can be three persons, each one fully God, and yet there is only one God, not three. But what I'm talking about, it's not impossible. It's just completely beyond our understanding. No one can understand this, I don't think. So again, we come back to the question, given that this doesn't make sense, why should I believe it? And I'd like to give you four reasons why we should believe it. And I'm going to give them to you in increasing, in ascending order of importance. So I'm going to begin with ah, not some, something not too serious, and then we're going to end with something that's really good. Okay, here's reason one. I reckon some comfort can be found in observing that in nature there are things that are completely beyond understanding. In nature there are some things that we can't understand and yet we know that they're true. And there is, of course, the whole realm of quantum mechanics. As has been famously said by someone, Freeman or someone, I've forgotten who it was, somebody once said, no one understands quantum mechanics. If you think you understand quantum mechanics, that's because you don't understand quantum mechanics. Because no one understands quantum mechanics. In the subatomic world, light is both a particle and a wave, both fully simultaneously. 
always true to both natures, even though at the scale at which we live, it is completely inconceivable how something could be both a particle and a wave at the same time. In the subatomic world, particles can have position or momentum, but they can't have both, only one or the other. That's really confusing because most of us travel around by cars. And when we're in the car, we have a position, we're somewhere, and we have momentum at the same time. But if you're a subatomic particle, you can have one but not the other. Does that make sense? No. Is it true? Yes. It would seem that this universe contains things that can be truly beyond our comprehension and yet true. And in the same way, the Bible reveals to us a God whose Trinitarian nature is also ultimately beyond our comprehension. That's one reason why I think we can, we can have some confidence in this. A second reason, even more important, is that the doctrine explains Scripture in a compelling fashion. It suddenly makes really good sense when we read it through Trinitarian eyes. Consider, for example, these two statements made by the same bloke. The same guy wrote both statements. Um, one of the things he said was, in the beginning was the word... So the word is eternal. It was there in the beginning. And the word was with God. In other words, the word is distinct from God. And the word was God. In other words, the word which is distinct from God was God. Okay. This same guy, he wrote something else you may have heard of before. He wrote this. He said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Neither of those statements can be meaningfully understood without the doctrine of the Trinity. In actual fact, they're both nonsense without the doctrine. However, if we interpret both statements in the light of the doctrine, we suddenly understand what John is going on about. More than that, we want to go on about it too. Thirdly, and in a related fashion, it is possible, actually, you know what? It is possible to jettison the doctrine of the Trinity and interpret the Bible against a completely different grid. And plenty of people have had a go at that. And many have tried over the centuries, but when you do that, you actually always get a different understanding of God, you get a different understanding of the gospel, you end up with something that basically says, you're going to save yourself when you do this. I don't know what it's going to be, you might save yourself by going door knocking on Saturday mornings and annoying people. But one way or the other, it's not God who saves you, it's you who saves you. When you tell people that, they get neurotic and fearful. It's like poison in their lives. Uh, the, this is a dangerous doctrine to reject. It always ends up hurting people when people reject the doctrine of the Trinity. It keeps us safe. And fourthly, most importantly, this doctrine becomes irresistible upon conversion because it is the doctrine it is the teaching that explains to us what conversion actually is when someone is born again that's the spirit's work in their life and when they meet jesus um, uh, um in meeting jesus through the holy spirit 
they, they're, they're convinced that in meeting Jesus they've met God. And, and you know what? Actually they have. And they become convinced that God is their father. And actually he is. And that Jesus is their great God and saviour. As Titus wrote in the letter that we read this morning. Uh, Paul wrote, sorry, to Titus in the letter that we read this morning. Um, all these things are true even though there aren't two gods or three gods. There's just one God. I guess what I'm saying is, uh, point four is all about this. True knowledge of God is only given in the context of relationship with God. In other words, you have to be God's friend in order to know what God is like. So what is God like? Um, Well, we're going to build a model of God, um, a bit like Phil's, uh, but I don't need plastic people, I need real people, and I actually need four volunteers... So can I have four volunteers? We're going to build a, build a, build a, thank you, Thomas. That's great. Four volunteers. Yeah. Yeah. Who's that? Is that John? Um, yeah. Um, uh, and um, that would be great. Um, uh, actually, what we'll do, John, is we'll sit you down. You're going to be a volunteer, but I would like uh, just to even up the gender thingy. Can, can I, can I, is there a girl volunteer? That's great. That's great. <laughs> now, what you guys have to do is, uh, just making this stuff up this is this is the witness of the apostles in the new testament this is why they write in trinitarian language is because that's their experience of god and of meeting god in face-to-face conversations with jesus in being filled with the holy spirit on the day of pentecost 
So there are four reasons why we can believe the doctrine of the Trinity. And our last question for this morning, uh, next slide, that's great. Our last question for this morning um, is what difference does this make anyway? And actually, the, the answer is this changes everything. This changes everything completely. Um, there is only one God. And just in case you haven't figured it out, that's really good news. There's only one God. The universe is not in some titanic struggle between the forces of good and the forces of evil. You know, and so we might have to quickly swap sides depending on who's winning at the moment. Um, there's no titanic struggle. God is supreme. And there's only one of him. There's only one God, only one source of absolute moral authority, power and righteousness. In actual fact, we only have two choices. Be reconciled to him or despair. But with respect to God, there is only one God. All true worldly sources of authority, the authority of governments, of parents, of teachers, etc., they take their authority hierarchically from God. Only one God. There's only one person that is God. There's only one person that we need to worry about pleasing. There's only one character we need to copy and conform to. There is only one God, and that is very good news. But God is three persons. Um, when I was a school chaplain, I, I would sometimes ask children, why do you think God created the world? By which I mean, you know, why did God create everything that has been created, the universe? So I ask kids, why do you think um, God created the world? And you know what? I only ever had one answer. Everybody answered the same. What do you think that answer from small children may have been? Why do you think God created the world? Because he was lonely. Um, that's, that's, that's the answer I always, always got. But, but if that's true, if we were created by a lonely, needy God, then that's likely to make our lives hell. I mean, imagine being emotionally responsible. Imagine being responsible for the emotional welfare of a needy God, of a needy, of a needy um, omnipotent God. Um, boy, would that be hard. Imagine having to save God from loneliness. <clears throat> the phone would never stop ringing. <laughs> but it isn't true. God didn't create the universe because he was lonely. In actual fact, as we saw in our model of God, God is a, a community of three persons who love each other. And God made us in order that we might know and share that same love. Um, just... Just as you and I are a product of our daddy's love for our mummy and our mummy's love for our daddy, and out of that we were created, so too, as a product of the father's love for the son and the son's love for the father through the Holy Spirit, the universe was created as an expression of the son's love for the father and the father's love for the son. And without the father, the son does nothing. Um, and through him all things were created, and there's nothing that has been created that wasn't created through him. 
And in this community, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they demonstrate their love through serving each other. Uh, when, in his days on earth, Jesus submitted to the Spirit, but now, in our age, the Spirit who is with us submits to the Son. And it is the Father's will that everything be in submission to his Son. However, the Father submits to us when we ask in Jesus' name. So when we copy our triune God, out of that comes wonderful things. Out of that comes teamwork, mutual acceptance, leaders acting like servants. And out of that comes the guaranteed equality of all members, even if there is a hierarchy of responsibility. In other words, even though there may be a hierarchical power and authority structure, yet nevertheless everybody exists as being equally important, equally loved, equally accepted. With a Trinitarian understanding of authority, sure there may still be hierarchies, but it's actually all about love all about serving the other. So it turns out that the doctrine of the Trinity is not only essential for making God, God, it is also essential for making humans, human. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.